Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and welcome back to Warfare, a podcast which we say is on the front line of military history. We bring you brand new, cutting-edge military histories from all around the world. And look back through our back catalogue of over 200 episodes. You're going to find something you love. And as I always say, if you think we're missing something, get in contact directly. Really keen to hear what you want to hear. So drop us an email on warfare at historyhit.com. Been loving the suggestions coming in recently. We're talking about everything from wars in Guatemala, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand all truly around the world. So please do keep them coming in. Now, this podcast, these topics are always something which I find fascinating. I'm fascinated by the history of war. It's why I do this. But this one is particularly close to my heart because for the last two years, I've been working with the United Nations on the wrongful shooting down and hijacking of civilian flights. In essence, I've been working on the ways in which civilian flights that we all fly on all around the world can be embroiled in conflict. So when I heard that Stephen Davis was writing a book and a new podcast on British Airways Flight 149, we had to get him on to talk about it. Now, I'm careful not to give too much away about this topic. Stephen, based upon his 30 years of working with the families, his research as a journalist, since the moment it happened, will tell you so much more about it in a far better way than I ever can. But due to the fact we talk about the hijacking of this plane, the handing over of prisoners to Saddam Hussein during the First Gulf War. Well, due to the nature of this topic, we talk about beatings, torture, mock executions, and rape. And so therefore, I have to warn you about that. But here now is Stephen Davis on the hijacking of British Airways Flight 149. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you, James. Good, good. Where are you speaking to us from in the world? I am in uh, Dunedin, which is near the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand. If you head south from here, the next landmass you will reach is Antarctica. Oh, wow. You're pretty far away from where I don't think you could be further away from where I am in Europe. What time is it where you are? Are you up incredibly late doing us a favour? I am doing your favour, James. It's well past my bedtime. But, you know, we have a lovely spot here. I have the Southern Ocean over to my right, and I'm looking forward to talking to you. Well, I'm excited to hear about this topic. You've been working on this for, for what, three decades now. It's one of those snippets of history that when I first heard about it, 
I just wanted to keep digging. I wanted all the answers there and then. And it sounds like something that, well, that's what you've been doing for the last 30 years. Tell us a little bit about the hijacking of British Airways Flight 149. Maybe start with the basics. When did this take place and where was the flight coming from? Yes, I'll take you back to August 1990. British Airways Flight 149 was sitting on the runway at Heathrow due to depart for Madras and Kuala Lumpur, but crucially with a refueling stop in Kuwait. The morning before the plane flew, there were lots of reports of Iraqi troops gathered on the border of Kuwait and Saddam Hussein had been threatening to invade Kuwait. So there was BA-149 with 385 passengers and crew. It took off and it flew to Kuwait and it landed in Kuwait as the airport was being surrounded by tanks and bombed. And everybody on board was taken hostage and used as human shields and suffered terribly at the hands of the Iraqis. I was sitting on the news desk of the Independent on Sunday. I was in the launch editorial team about three days after the plane landed. And I got a call from a friend who said, a contact in intelligence, who said, basically, you should have a look at this because what they're saying about this flight is not true and it's worth an investigation. And that started me on a very long journey, which, as you say, has lasted three decades to get to the truth about what happened. So take us back a little bit, because this sounds incredibly bizarre to me, but maybe I'm projecting current intelligence technologies and and current government processes onto a period of 30 years ago. Because as we sit here at this moment in time, and we're very much discussing Russian involvement in Ukraine, we've known for weeks before this that there is an amassing of troops. We've known that it's probably not a good idea to send commercial civil aviation over those sites. To me, with Saddam Hussein, who had one of the world's largest ground-based armies, over a million troops, you're going to be able to see whether or not he's amassing on the borders. And potentially, it might not be a good idea to send in a British Airways flight next door. Do we know about this? Is this something that was aware to the authorities? Yes, it was absolutely aware. Even though we're talking about an era before mobile telephones and other modern technology, the simple fact is Saddam had been threatening to invade for months. And satellite footage picked up the troop movements. They picked up the Republican Guard, the tanks and their refueling depots being placed at the border, just like now with Ukraine. In fact, they picked up the tanks warming up and turning on their engines. The CIA, which is accused of getting many things wrong, accurately predicted the invasion about eight days before it happened. And crucially, on that morning, the morning of August the 1st, 1990, the CIA issued a formal warning that Saddam Hussein was going to invade Kuwait. Nevertheless, British Airways Flight 149 was allowed to take off and fly to Kuwait. Now, there's lots of different intricate processes about where a plane can fly, why a plane can fly, when a plane can't fly. In this situation, was British Airways Flight 149 the only one that was allowed to go through and land? Or did this happen to so many other flights and so many other passengers as well? No, not at all. In fact, um, the first thing that the passengers noted when BA 149 landed in Kuwait City was the airport was empty. And in fact, my investigation revealed that a Kuwaiti Airlines flight, which was returning to Kuwait from Bangkok, 
had a message from the control tower saying, emergency here, divert to Bahrain. So it landed in Bahrain rather than landing in at Kuwait airport. So BA-149 alone landed at that airport at the time the invasion started. No sooner had they landed, some of the passengers got off. As I said, it was a refueling stop. In those days, you could stay on the plane while it was being refueled, which of course would never happen now. And so there were passengers sitting on the plane and tens of thousands of gallons of aviation fuel are being put in it. And all of a sudden, two MiG jets streak by and bomb the airport and the whole plane is shaking. So as you imagine, it's effectively a bomb. But then we saw Iraqi planes come by, the military planes, and start bombing the runways. And that's when my jaw dropped and suddenly it was like, oh my goodness, what is going on? That was, that was really the moment where you realize, oh my God, this is not my, the holiday I had hoped for. And uh, you kind of start this first sinking in of, oh my God, I'm, I'm really in the wrong place. I, I really, something's going drastically wrong here. The next thing we saw was from two opposite sides of the aircraft, there were two jets that came swooping down and then swooped back up again. And then we just saw something fall. And the next thing we saw was just, we just saw some sand come up, you know, the, you know, the debris come up. And before we knew it, the passengers that were in the aircraft were screaming and rushing out of the aircraft. And we're standing there going, oh my God, what the hell's just happened? An emergency evacuation takes place and the alarm passengers run from the plane into the terminal. Those passengers who were waiting in the terminal had already noticed a lot of strange things. First off, nobody else is around. They also noticed that the Kuwaiti soldiers who provided security at the airport appeared to have all been disarmed. They had no pistols in their holsters. So that was another alarming sign. So no, BA-149 alone was stuck in a war zone, nobody else. There had been a KLM flight there, but it had gone. The Dutch seemed to have an early alert and got their people out, but the passengers and crew of 149 were trapped, trapped and delivered into the hands of Saddam Hussein. So this goes down to a, a, a nation-state decision. It's a national-level decision about whether or not planes can fly or fly over a certain territory, or is it even down to the provider themselves about whether or not they're going to allow their planes to to take that little bit of extra risk and go and land next to what is potentially or is about to become a war zone? Well, that's a very interesting question. Why did the Kuwait control tower turn away the Kuwaiti Airlines flight but allow the 149 flight to land? And that goes to one of the secrets of my book and podcast. But it's important to realize that for 30 years, the British government and British Airways have said one thing about this flight. One of the major things they have said was the invasion started after the plane landed. They have maintained that again and again and again. Mrs. Thatcher made a statement to the House of Commons in 1990 saying exactly that. Every single word she said in that statement was a lie. After my book was released in August of last year, Operation Trojan Horse, a couple of months later, the UK Foreign Secretary had to release a statement admitting that, in fact, the invasion had started before the plane had landed, but nevertheless, the plane was allowed to land. I think the thing that always worries me here, and it sends a bit of a shiver down your spine, 
is the lack of coordination there is internationally about managing air travel and about creating these no-go zones over war zones as well. And we've seen it in recent years. We've seen it in the shooting down of Malaysian Airlines flights over Ukraine, at that point an active zone of, of conflict. And of course, we've, we've seen it most recently in 2020 with the Iranian shooting down of Ukraine Airlines flight PS752. Now, I was involved in the UN investigation of that flight, advising on some of the weapons issues there. And I suppose one thing I want to ask you is, since that period in time, have you seen, or in reaction perhaps, to the uh, hijacking of 149 in Kuwait, were there many changes, have there been many changes in the processes around British civil aviation? Has it become safer? Is this something that could happen again? Can you set our minds at rest even? To be honest, while there have been various improvements and clearly a satellite and general communications have improved, it could absolutely happen again. It could happen again because, of course, of the nature of international air flights going over a large number of territories, being handed off from control tower to control tower or group to group. There's an inbuilt possibility of confusion there. But bear in mind that the safety procedures the normal procedures which would have you turn away from a danger zone actually worked in Kuwait that night for aircraft that were not BA-149. And the starting point of my investigation was why was BA-149 allowed to land that evening? Why, for instance, did the control tower tell a Kuwaiti's airlines pilot divert to Bahrain? And when the captain of BA-149, Richard Brunier, contacted the control tower, they said, OK, safe to land. I feel like you're going to let that question hang. So <laughs> I'm not even yes, going to That's one you. of the mysteries that is discussed in the book and the podcast, which the podcast, by the way, is called The Secret History of Flight 149. Okay. Well, we want to, of course, leave some things for the listeners. So we'll let, we'll let that. I'll let you have that one. We'll let that hang, Stephen. Instead, I want you to take me through the actual day itself. So Saddam invades at around 2 a.m. local time, August 2nd. Well, that's the official timings that we give in, in the history. First of all, clear that up. Is that the actual time that we should say the invasion took place? Or is it earlier on August 1st when that plane has landed? Yeah, it's the, the timeline that even the most recent timeline and admission given by the British government is wrong. I have the Defence Intelligence Agency, the US Defence Intelligence Agency flash message which went to Washington, London, NATO headquarters, you know, Uncle Tom Cobley and all, everybody that needed to have it. Iraqi troops have crossed the border into Kuwait. And that was when BA-149 was three and a half hours flying time from Kuwait, less than halfway through its journey. So there was ample time. There was all the time in the world for somebody to contact that flight and divert it. The background, though, a very crucial set of decisions was made on the day and leading up to that flight. First off, the pilot asked for a briefing, and the British Airways manager in Kuwait went to see the British embassy in Kuwait and basically said to them, tell us whether it's safe to fly. For 30 years, British Airways has been telling us all that they were told by the embassy it was safe to fly. So they flew. 
But my book and the podcast reveal that the very man who gave that briefing at the embassy, a man called Tony Pace, who had an official title at the embassy, but whose actual title was he was the station chief for MI6, British intelligence, rather than tell them it was safe to fly, said, in fact, if you have a flight going through tomorrow morning at a particular time, you're likely to run into the invasion. And his words, by the way, were confirmed by the British Foreign Secretary in a statement late last year. So you have a decision, you have a situation where British Airways says they were told it was safe to fly, but actually they weren't. And a plane is sent to Kuwait where all other planes are turned away. And without giving too much away, there's an important moment in the history of BA-149 on that day. It's sitting on the runway. And to be honest, they didn't think they were going to stop at Kuwait. Everybody'd heard the news about the troops gathering. The chief purser had told his stewards and stewardesses, don't worry, I think we'll be diverted, etc. During that two-hour, it, it waited for a two-hour period because of a delay caused by a fault in the air conditioning unit. All the other passengers and crew were on board. During that two-hour delay, in fact, just before it took off, a group of young men got on board at the last minute, and they walked to the back of the plane. Nine or 10 young men looked very fit, tanned. A lot of the passengers looked at them and thought, what the hell are they doing here? What are they getting on for at the last minute? And more than that, a lot of passengers looked at them and thought, "Mm, they look like soldiers. They look like military to me. They're carrying themselves like military. When the plane landed in Kuwait City and the door opened, a uniformed British officer was there. He told the chief purser, I'm there to meet that group. It turned out he was referring to the group at the back. Those men were called from the back of the plane to the front of the plane, met by the officer, got their stuff and disappeared from the airport. They were the only group on the plane not to be captured by the Iraqis. And in 30 years of me reporting on this story, none of those men have ever come forward to say, oh, gee, we were a tourist, we were an oil worker, whatever. I know who they were and have investigated it and reported it in my book. But those men and their presence on the plane were the reason why that flight was sent to Kuwait and the reason why those people were being landed in a war zone and put through the most terrible suffering, which in itself was covered up, by the way, by governments. That is remarkable, incredible, almost unbelievable, because you get to this point where it's the militarization of civil aviation. You have civilians on a passenger plane on their way back home or on holiday, and you put military personnel, who of course can be targeted in time of conflict, onto this flight with civilians. And and one of the things that I found during my own research into other hijackings and shooting downs that have taken place, of course, is that planes carry with them a IFF, for identification friend or foe, and you have to have a, a certain code that presents you as a, a civilian plane or as a military plane, and that's to make sure that you don't get a merging of the two in terms of air defence, so you don't get a shooting down of a civilian flight. The interesting thing there is that when it comes to Iraq, during the Iran-Iraq war through the 80s, they actually played around and manipulated those systems so that military flights would carry civil codes and civil flights you know, might carry military codes, all to confuse the enemy and create the fog of war. 
So in this situation, not only do you have a passenger plane that could be mistaken as a, a military transporter plane, it might be identified as civil aviation, but could be military aviation, but in this case, actually does have a military component going into a war zone. Isn't this an incredibly unacceptable risk to the civilians on board? Completely unacceptable, as was demonstrated by that case. And, and my investigations show, actually, James, that this is a fairly frequent occurrence. So close was the relationship between British Airways and the Special Forces and MI6 that it had a nickname amongst MI6, BA was known as Bucks Fizz among the agents. And there had been previous occasions, amazingly enough, which since my book came out, I've been told, where passenger planes were flown into dangerous situations for military operational purposes. As Iran was subject to the revolution, the Shah fled and the Ayatollah took over. And you'd imagine how threatening that was for Westerners already stuck in Tehran. British Airways diverted a plane to land in Tehran, risking the lives of the people on board and its crew to pick up a special team and get them out. In 1990, they deliberately risked the lives of those passengers and its crew to get those men on the ground. And I also discovered late in my reporting that the captain of British Airways Flight 149, Richard Brunier, sadly now deceased, but he is actually the source for this material. Richard Brunier was an asset for MI6. So the pilot of the plane was also in. So this might as well, just might as well have been a military operation. And unfortunately, those people getting on the plane who thought they were going on to India or on holiday to Malaysia and never even thought about their refueling stop were effectively used, as the book title says, as a Trojan horse to get those guys on the ground. The oldest military trick in the book, but in this case with horrific consequences. Have you ever wondered if those pointy medieval shoes gave you bunions? Would you be friends with someone who had leprosy in the Middle Ages? And what on earth does that Bluetooth symbol on your phone have to do with the Vikings? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and on Gone Medieval we find those answers for you, talking everything from saints to sacrifices, runes to relics, sex to science. Join me, Dr Kat Jarman, and my co-host Matt Lewis for everything from berserkers to battles and runes to raids. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So take us through some of these personal stories, because I know during your investigation of this, you've spoken with many of those who were taken hostage. First of all, how were they taken hostage? Okay, so they land and uh, the Iraqis were amazed, by the way, to find they were there. The Iraqis were unprepared to have been delivered a whole plane load of Western hostages. And uh, interestingly enough, for two or three days, the Iraqis didn't know what to do with them, or sometimes up to a week. And they were just kept at nearby hotels. And that enabled the British Foreign Office to put up a bit of spin. I remember, as I said, being told about this in the Independent Sunday in August 1990. And the Foreign Office briefing was, yes, this is unfortunate, but it'll all work out. And don't worry, these people are being probably having an unexpected holiday. They're sipping cocktails by the pool at luxury hotels in the sunshine, which was kind of partially true for about a few days. And it's also an interesting exercise in the way the first version of a story is often the one that's believed, classic spin. But after a while, the Iraqis realized they had a valuable asset. They realized that Bush and Thatcher Woods assemble a grand coalition, had pledged to kick the Iraqis out of Kuwait. And so this asset became known as the Human Shields. And they became known as the Human Shields because Saddam scattered them all over Iraq and Kuwait at sites that he thought the Allies would bomb. Ironically enough, this was when Saddam actually had weapons of mass destruction programs. Some of them ended up at nuclear and chemical facilities, et cetera, et cetera. So these people became human shields. The interesting thing about the story and what's really driven me on and made me so angry is not only have these people been lied about why they landed there in the first place, but the government even covered up a report it commissioned into what happened to them. The report is called Operation Sandcastle, and it was suppressed for 30 years. It was finally revealed in very short form in December, just gone, and it reveals three and a half thousand war crimes documented war crimes, 2,000 against UK citizens and 1,500 against other citizens. So here's a government covering up the war crimes against its own people. As to what happened to these, let me tell you, there were rapes. There were sexual assaults of both men and women. There were near starvation conditions. The podcast reveals one horrific moment where a group of Brits in a camp were so desperate, they bribed a guard to get them food. And what he came up with was the leg of a giraffe from the local zoo. There were people who were subject to mock executions. They were taken out to the desert in the middle of the night in a bus. They were made to get out. They were given shovels. They were made to dig a hole. They were made to crouch in front of the hole. 
while the guards lined up behind them and cocked their weapons. They heard the click, and these people, of course, are praying or whatever you do before you think you're just about to die. And then after the click, the guards fell about laughing. It was their sort of psychological torture. Many of these people, 30 years later, still suffer from PTSD. Many of the adults lost their jobs. They weren't able to work properly again. They lost their houses because they couldn't pay their mortgage. Years of psychological counseling. A young lady who was 12 years old when she was on the flight, who I interviewed again only last week, has never recovered and tried to kill herself, has lost all trust. It's a horror story. And every time I talk to one of these people and think what happened to them and think how easily it could have been avoided, it makes me angry. And that's what's pushed me on in the investigation in the last 30 years. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us. Why has it been covered up for 30 years? That man has been shot. My God. What you recount there is truly life-changing trauma. How long were these people kept hostage? Were they all released at once? Or by the sounds of it, if they're so dispersed across different regions under different threats, did it take until the liberation of Kuwait for them to actually be freed? Yeah, they were scattered across all these sites, and your fate often depended on which nationality you were. So early on, the Brits and the Americans who had those passports realised they were in for it, that they weren't going to be let go early. Some of the Indian and Malaysian passengers managed to get out relatively quickly. At one stage, after Mrs. Thatcher accused Saddam of hiding behind the skirts of women and children, He decided to release some of the women and some of the children. But a lot of the men were there for um, up to five months in very grim conditions. And in some cases, the wives stayed with them. And it's very interesting about the released. Of course, we know what a mercurial figure Saddam Hussein was and how nobody could figure out his move sometime. Well, in December, I take you back to December 1990. Bush and Thatcher have assembled the Grand Coalition. They're ready to start Desert Storm. There was this huge force on the ground. And the military planners are desperately worried about these hostages. Peter de la Belliere from the SAS and the Delta Force people were trying to work out a rescue plan. But you can imagine the complexity, what would have essentially be 70 separate rescue special forces, rescue operations all simultaneously to get these people out. So the planners, it was a terrible problem for them. And then in December, for no apparent reason that anybody could ever figure out, Saddam decided to let all the hostages go home. So they actually got out just before Desert Storm started. And and nobody knows why. I mean, you know, he was a madman. So, And how did they get out? I, I mean, on the eve of battle before Stormy Norman Schwarzkopf moves the troops into the Hundred Hour War that takes Saddam's largely conscript forces and pushes them back into Iraq. Before all of that happens, how do they get out of Kuwait? Are they escorted by Saddam's troops? Are we allowed to have impartial people take them and make sure that they're safe? What's the process? Oh, it was incredibly nerve-wracking for them all. Some of them were taken to Baghdad and flown out. But on their journey to Baghdad, they had to pass checkpoints and they never knew what was happening. They were searched. 
couple of them had taken the risk, the Brits of traveling on fake Malaysian passports to see if it would help them get out, of course, if they'd found out. Uh, a British uh, man called Douglas Koskoy, who tried to escape early on, had been murdered by the Iraqis at the border. So that made everybody very nervous. Some of them tried to cross in land convoys. I mean, it was all one big mess and, and incredibly traumatic for them all. A Danish lady who I talked to only the other day got to the airport at Baghdad, having been told she was going to be released. And then the guy said, you can't go. The other people on the plane, you can't go because your documents aren't in order. And we're going to take you into this room and we're going to strip search you. And at that point, she thought she was really in trouble because she'd heard stories about the rapes. There'd been a lot of them um, horrifically. And this woman, who's, who's rather splendidly feisty, said no. Uh, she said, you're not doing that. You're not taking me there. And she turned and there were a group of Western media there and they were there with their cameras. And she said to the guy, no, you're not doing that. And she said, if There'd you insist on this, I'm going to go over um, to those people over there and with their cameras and I'm going to tell them what you've been doing in Kuwait. Because, of course, the occupation was incredibly brutal with brutal suppression of the Kuwaiti resistance. And so the guy looked at her and she looked very determined. And in the end, he probably decided this is too much of a problem get on the plane, but he could have just as easily taken around the corner and shot her. So everybody had a truly traumatic story and everybody, you know, they all got out bar a few. And the people that remained behind from the plane, of course, were the group of young men who had arrived and disappeared in the first place. And without going into too many details, since this is a program that looks at military history, this is another very significant thing and a very significant deception. You know, that war of 1990s being kind of forgotten, really, was considered a good, simple, straightforward war and, and so forth. These guys were gathering intelligence on the ground. And one of the principal reasons they were there was to see if the Republican Guard, which had invaded Kuwait, would go on to invade Saudi Arabia at which point Saddam would be in control of, you know, 40% of the world's oil supply. So a crucial thing happened. Cheney and Schwarzkopf fly to Saudi Arabia, and they say to the king, the Iraqis are going to invade. We've got a solution for you. American troops can come in onto Saudi soil, sacred Saudi soil, and we will protect you. And to their surprise, the king accepted the offer. However, two important points. First off, Somebody who wasn't happy with American troops on Saudi soil was a rich Saudi who had previously made an offer to raise a group of holy warriors to kick Iraq out of Kuwait. That man swore revenge on the West. His name was Osama bin Laden, and he did take revenge. And Dick Clark, um, who's a national security expert, you probably know him. In my book, he makes a very, uh, I quote a speech he made. He said, the rise of Al-Qaeda, the US invasion of Afghanistan, the second U.S. war with Iraq, the rise of ISIS, all followed that August 1990 decision to deploy large U.S. forces to the Gulf. That was the moment that history changed gear. But my book and podcast reveal that it was based on an astonishing misuse of intelligence. They were getting intelligence reports from London and Washington that Iraqi troops were digging in defensive positions in southern Kuwait. They were digging tank berms, they were building defensive positions, and therefore had no intention of invading Saudi Arabia. 
30 years later, there was not a single shred of evidence that Saddam Hussein ever intended to invade Saudi Arabia. And yet Cheney and Schwarzkopf persuading the king to allow American troops in to deter an invasion, a moment that changed history forever. So this is a a deception within a deception within a deception. But when it comes down to trying to persuade Saudi Arabia to let the, the coalition in, I mean, in terms of a justifiable reason, it may not be the case that Saudi Arabia was going to be under attack by Saddam's troops. We know that Saddam wanted to take hold of a vast amount of the world's oil. He was bankrupt after that Iranian-Iraqi war. This was something that he believed he could get away with. But in that moment, as the Cold War has come to an end, in what Francis Fukuyama called the end of history, the great victory for democracy and capitalism, this is about President George H.W. Bush, the senior Bush, trying to make sure that you're upholding the status quo. This is trying to punish Saddam for violating the sovereignty of a nation state, the state of Kuwait, something that is not deemed to be acceptable during the 1990s, something that we'd argue is not deemed acceptable today with President Putin violating the sovereignty of Ukraine. This is one of those norms in the international system that has to be reacted to and has to be upheld. Is that not a justifiable reason why it was uh, necessary to send troops into Saudi Arabia? I totally agree with you uh, that the invasion of Kuwait, as Thatcher said, should not allow to stand. Similarly, obviously, with Russia and the Ukraine. And it was clearly militarily useful for the Americans to plan their mission on the basis they had troops on the ground in Saudi Arabia. It made their life easier. And that's a fair point. But my point was, that's not the explanation that they gave history And if we're looking at accurately recording the history of the event as opposed to the spin that we've been given, whether it be on BA149 or other matters, the accuracy is that there was no intent by Saddam to invade Saudi. And so let's have that as a fact and let's argue the pros and cons afterwards. But I, as a journalist, and I'm sure historians would agree, we disagree with the spin And also, you know, Dick Clark makes a point, was the convenience of having a military presence in Saudi Arabia worth all the turmoil that we've suffered since? Imagine if there was no 9-11. Imagine if there was no invasion of Afghanistan. Imagine what kind of better world we might have ended up with. It is is one of those counterfactuals, one of those turning points, those questions in history that we will we will never know the answer to it. Certainly, 9-11 changed the world forever that day. And it is interesting, you know, all these points of deception that you do point out, because as Sun Tzu said, all war is deception. And you're really helping to get that across here. But the thing that concerns me, I think, the most now is just to find out what happened to those civilians. Like you say, they, they had an almost indescribable amount of trauma Have they not sought some sort of legal retribution, some monetary retribution, some means by which they can be compensated for the trauma and the suffering that they have been through, and someone to be held accountable? As far as the trauma goes, uh, and which has been lifelong, they were offered very little when they got back. The world moved on very quickly. Of course, journalists moved on. The hostages were back. It seemed like the issue was over. The government successfully covered up the terrors of what happened to them, and we all moved on to Desert Storm and all that drama, such as life. But the trauma has lasted for them for 30 years. 
there were, have been a number of attempts to sue. And one of the interesting parts of this story is the different ways in which passengers were treated depending on which country they came from. The American passengers sued. They got some pretty devastating depositions in secret, but I've seen them exposing British Airways. And so British Airways settled in secret and paid the American passengers quite large sums of money. When the British passengers sued, BA fought them tooth and nail to not give them a penny. Now, a very interesting point about this is that BA-149 was destroyed on the ground towards the end of the war. And it was always claimed that the Iraqis had destroyed it. I thought this is very odd because when the Iraqis left Kuwait, they literally looted everything they could get their hands on, you know, taps and light bulbs. And they had a nice British Airways 747. Why did they blow it up rather than simply fly it back to Iraq? The answer was they didn't blow it up. It was blown up by the US Air Force on the instructions of the British government. And for that, British Airways got a huge insurance payout. So they have a huge insurance payout to discover their loss, but they are fighting their passengers through every stage of the court in the United Kingdom not to pay them any money. It got to the House of Lords, and the House of Lords basically revealed that under the Warsaw Convention, which governs air travel, trauma you suffered after you got off the plane doesn't count. So the Brits got nothing. The French, meanwhile, hired lawyers and got a big payout. So one of the tragedies of this affair is that British passengers and indeed Australian and New Zealand passengers got nothing, whereas the Americans and the French at least had the satisfaction of getting some compensation. As for accountability, the British government and British Airways have denied any accountability for three decades now. Most of the passengers just want them to tell the truth. My book conclusively reveals that both have been incredibly deceptive and gradually there have been cracks in the wall. As I said before, they have always said, look, the plane landed and then the invasion was later. Now they've had to admit the invasion started before the plane landed and they failed to warn the plane. They will never talk about the role of those secret soldiers on board. That's not something they discuss. I discuss it in the book and the podcast. Most of the passengers now, James, would just settle, forget money, just own up, say you're sorry, say you're sorry for the trauma that was inflicted, and, and, and apologize and say it will never happen again. It sounds like that this story isn't over yet, is it, Stephen? No, actually, since the book was published and since we started working on the podcast, I've had tremendous new information come to me from intelligence sources, from passengers, from people on the ground. Tony Pace, who I referred to earlier, who is the MI6 station chief in Kuwait, has very bravely risked imprisonment for breach of the Official Secrets Act to talk to us in the podcast about what happened. So I haven't given up. The passengers haven't given up. And yes, this is going to go on. So it seems like the prime moment to tell us the name of your new podcast and tell us where people can buy the book. Yes, the podcast is called The Secret History of Flight 149, and it's out next month, produced by Crowd Network. It'll be available on all the usual sources. My book is called Operation Trojan Horse, published by Bonnier. It's Operation Trojan Horse in all of the world, except for the US and Canada, where they called it Flight 149 available, as they say, in uh, all good bookshops and perhaps some not so good bookshops as well.
Perfect. That's what we like to hear. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for bringing all the hidden aspects of this history to us and also leaving us wanting more information. Thank you for your time. Cheers, James. Thank you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.